Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Just remind everybody that they can't call collect next week. <laughs> we wouldn't make you pick up the tab anyway. <laughs> We're so magnanimous in that way. I see it. Wonderful. So how did uh, Eric Cantor blow the uh, congressional primary? Uh, how would you analyze it first? We'll talk about Israel and his support and how important he is to the Jewish community worldwide and all that in a moment. But how would you analyze it strictly from a an American political science point of view? Well, as you said, it's, it's sending shockwaves, and people are analyzing, did he not devote enough attention? Did he, um, did he get too Washington-oriented with his uh, national responsibilities as the majority leader? Uh, was his uh, opponent able on, on a couple hundred thousand dollars to compete against him at $5 million by manufacturing these, these arguments against him uh, on immigration issues and other things? And there's also uh, apparently a crossover vote by Democrats, uh, perhaps tens of thousands. Also, his his district was redistricted, mm. and he had much more of a, uh, a rural area in, included in his district. So this was a different district than the last time he ran. So it had changed. Uh, his polling indicated up until the very last minute that, that he was way ahead, and I think he may have uh, said that in view of that could devote more time to his national responsibilities and uh, congressional responsibilities and the, the district uh, felt that that I guess that he wasn't home enough now you've spoken and you have uh, I mean over the years certainly but even over the last few months you've pointed out different personalities around Norpac time we had an opportunity to discuss this different personalities who are really there in Congress for Israel and for items important to us. Uh, over the years, I mean, he's he's got to be at that top level in that category. No right? one better. No one better. No one better than Eric, and you know he was the sole sole Republican Jew, by the way. Right. Uh, and he uh, he was a leader in every respect. He stood by his beliefs, his principles. I don't think he cared whether you know how popular it made him or not. He won because of people's confidence in him and his colleagues' confidence in him. But his stands on the issues that really counted were, for us were really uh, always consistently outstanding. So when you first heard the news Tuesday night, I mean, it, when people asked you your reaction, it was not just a personal reaction. Obviously, you know him very well and all of that, and 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 you're praising him the way you are. But just on an international scale, there was a there was a shockwave. It's a shockwave, and it you know has obviously implications. You have the twenty the elections coming up. Uh, this year, the congressional elections in November, uh, does it, and, and the question that everybody's speculating, does it force candidates to go to the right? Do they, does it kill the possibility of immigration reform? Does it, you know, send the message for 2016? Obviously, all of these things people speculate about and, and go beyond just the individual race. So we don't know whether this is uh, because of some uh, of a local phenomenon, or does it have broader implications? Because Lindsey Graham, on the same night, trounced a, a Tea Party opponent. Right. Uh, many people thought, certainly earlier on, that he was vulnerable. Who's going to take his position in uh, Congress, Eric Cantor? It depends who... Uh, Kevin McCarthy will, will, that, will replace him. He's a good guy. He was very close to, to uh, Eric Cantor. And uh, his opponent uh, 
Sessions from Texas uh, dropped out late last night. All right. So, um, and, and again, we always emphasize that congressional support for Israel is usually there. In fact, we could talk about it this week with uh, the different things that we're reading about regarding the brand new PA and the congressional attitude toward funding the PA. Um, so all in all, I know that this isn't great news, and you've described for us the type of friend we've lost in Congress, but big picture, what would you say? You know, we we, we will persevere. We will, what, what would you say? In oh, the support in Congress remains very strong. It's, it's truly overwhelming, and it's not dependent on any individual, although an individual can, especially in a leadership position, be very helpful on uh, in a range of ways. Uh, as he always was. So the policy, I don't think, will be impacted. The uh, the margins, when you have votes on Israel, it's usually 80%, 90% of the Congress uh, supporting them. All right. All right. And speaking of elections, let's go to the one that was in Israel this week, maybe not as significant. You'll, you could tell us, in fact, if you think it is. Uh, Ruby Rivlin is now the president of Israel, and in many ways, not unexpected because he was a, a serious candidate and somebody who I don't think anybody would be surprised that he actually won the thing. What was with the last minute jockeying? Was, uh, did anything happen that propelled him to the top in the end in terms of how things worked in the Knesset or? Anything special in terms of what was going on at the last minute? You know, there's so much uh, dealing and wheeling and dealing and uh, interaction during the presidential races. As you know, in the past, other candidates who thought they had a majority from Paris in the past, uh, only to find out that, that it wasn't there when it came to the actual ballot. Right. So like they used to say about the Israeli public, it seems that the Israeli Knesset it tells the truth to the pollsters <laughs> and then lies at the vote. <laughs> Even so there, huh? And it is a secret ballot, so they can do whatever they want. Once and it it's is a re- popularity contest to a large degree. It's also a vote sometimes, let's say, against the, the prime minister if he backs a candidate and people want to have a protest vote, or it can be over certain issues. Uh, and as you know, the prime minister and Rivlin had a very fraught relationship. They have agreed to put that behind them and to work together. And, and your, your question, uh, the premise of the initial part of the question, is one that's widely held about the significance or lack of significance. I do believe it is significant because the presidency is a bully pulpit. You, 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 the president is a unifying force. It's seen as perhaps uh, has the most positive reviews by the Israeli public. And the person in the office can use it for good, for bad, but uh, for uh, extensive more extensive and activist engagement, like Paris did, or less so as some of his predecessors. Chaim White, uh, Weitzman was also an activist president. I think Vivian Herzog, Chaim Herzog was. Uh, the, the, the individual really shapes the nature, despite whatever legal limitations and the, and the fact that it's a figurehead. Uh, in, in the president gets to speak to world leaders, to prominent personalities. He hosts them. He, he engages them. Uh, the, he can play an important role in being a link to diaspora communities. Shimon Peres had all those the, the annual conferences in his honor. He had the, you know, he, he received prizes, Nobel Prize, other prizes over the years, uh, and he enjoyed a, an international stature, which will continue. We'll see how, what role he will play. Uh, and Rivlin, who has, as uh, a lawyer, was Speaker of the Knesset, has a long history of involvement. His family came, I think, in 1809 to Israel. His father was a Middle East scholar. Uh, I think he was the first to translate the Quran into Hebrew. Uh, 
and uh, he's always been very proud of his uh, Yerushalayim heritage. He's been close to many in the religious community, religious sectors of uh, Israel. Uh, he served as in Sharon's government. I think he was communications minister, as I recall. Uh, so, you know, this is not a novice in the political process. He doesn't come from outside. He comes from within. And obviously he got 63 votes, more than half of the Knesset. Tens of items on his resume you just cited. Tens of items, and you left out the most important one. Who's he related to? Cousin Tomatis Weingast. Oh. <laughs> I figured there was something. <laughs> you're uh, a, you're some a significant a, historical aspect. You're unbelievable how you pick up on these man. things. <laughs> it's amazing how you pick up on these things. Well, with that having been yeah, said... 36,000 relatives of the Rivlin family estimated to be in Israel. And Matis told me there were only 20. I can't believe it. That he was one of them. Just kidding. So with all that having been said, if if somebody did not like the politics, so to speak, or the political background of a Shimon Peres, will they like the political background and politics of a Ruby Rivlin? Oh, yes. it's, it's They're vastly different in, in many respects. Um, but his politics, yes, and what is it? No, he opposed the disengagement from Gaza. And ended up voting that way or had no vote? No, I think he voted against it. He did vote against because even Bibi, you recall, voted for it in the end yep. to go along with the government. Um, uh, and is it five years or seven years? Seven. It's a seven-year term? Right. Now, it used to be two five. Now it's a seven-year Ah, so that's what it was. So it was two. So when I, when I thought of five, that was... Uh, that was, in fact, correct. Now it is a seven-year term for President of Israel. Again, speaking of President of Israel, there was this prayer meeting with the Pope in the Vatican, with Abbas and Paris, right? Yes. And anything come of it? I mean, because I, I saw, I, I don't know, that the whole exchange or the whole greeting, the whole encounter between Paris and Abbas there with the Pope, uh, the, 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 I don't, they seemed like best friends. It, it came off to me as uh, a little disingenuine compared to the friction that is now being held between Israel and the PA. Look, uh, uh, Perez has known Abbas now for a long time. They've uh, met many times. The, um, this was an invitation extended to him and not to Netanyahu as a, as a titular head of, of state. He's not head of government. Right. Uh, Abbas. I don't know what he's the head of right now, given that you have this interim <laughs> regime. He's still president of the PA. Right. Uh, but many people question, you know, who the authorities are. We see the growing power of Hamas, which we will uh, talk to. But and, and interestingly, the the one of the Hamas spokesmen, a former spokesman, uh, uh, said in a video that was released that the that Abbas told them, "Don't listen to what I say to the Americans. This is, I'm trying. I'm tricking the Americans." Just listen to what I say to you directly. That's right. all that counts. So the idea that, that given all that has happened in the last weeks, that uh, Paris went ahead was criticized by, by many people. Uh, others said that it was legitimate, that uh, when the Pope extends a public invitation, you don't turn it down, and then Israel looks like they're the obstacle to peace. So the, the uh, you know, it's a sort of difficult choice for... But I wonder how Bibi would have handled it if he was there. Well, I, I, he, uh, the president, uh, Paris, twice embraced Abbas. I right. doubt that Bibi would have done that. Right, that's what I would assume. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County, 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. The big news is that next week, 
Malcolm Honeline plans on being in our studio here at JMNAM. It'll afford an opportunity to anybody out there who can get through to call up and ask a question, make a comment, uh, discuss with Malcolm whatever you wish. We'll try to start that as soon as he walks in next week, and we'll try to take it all the way until the end of the show, uh, breaking only for a Bayudin. It's an opportunity we have very rarely. I think the last time we did it was a couple of years back. And um, we'll uh, present that next week and uh, give everyone a chance uh, to go ahead and participate in this process. All right, so I was going to ask you about that. When you hear Abbas or when you hear somebody from Hamas say that, in fact, that's what Abbas claims to be doing, to be saying one thing to the world and obviously giving a different message to Hamas and other members of his unity government, what do you think? Well, yesterday, 88 senators wrote to President Obama saying that they were gravely concerned about this Palestinian unity government, so-called. Uh, Hamas, rather than being isolated in Gaza, is now becoming much more active in Yudun Shamron, in the areas of the PA, in the West Bank. They're trying to create an alternative Dawa social and cultural movement. They're building the infrastructure to eventually enable them to replace the PA government. They're allowed now to hold public rallies, public events, and police do not interfere, although there have been public clashes, there have been some security arrests, even just in the last few days. Uh, the members of the Senate indicated they're going to review the aid because you know a poll comes out this week and shows that 56% of Palestinians opposed any talks for peace now with, with uh, uh, Israel. Uh, the United States said to Abbas that, that he's got to be held to account now for the rockets, or I would say perhaps a little bit less than that, did say to him that he has to act against the rockets that are being fired from Gaza. Once again, we had uh, one, the first since this new government was in, in place, and the IDF uh, or the Israel Air Force actually responded and, and took out a, a terrorist. Um, the, the, the I raised last week one of the issues... Uh, in the quartet conditions is disarmament, that the PA and the Palestinian entity will be disarmed. Well, then the Gaza now is a violation of that, given the tens of thousands of missiles, some of them with 80-kilometer range. uh, The chief of staff, I think, this week said that there are perhaps 10,000 missiles, long- and medium-range missiles that are are aimed at Israel uh, from from, uh, Gaza, and if the PA is living up to the requirements, as they said that they accepted this, this interim government, technocrat government, accepted the conditions of the quartet, while they should be moving very quickly against these these rockets, and they have to be held to account by the international community, uh, otherwise the the sham is is exposed uh, is exposed right away. We see how they're going after Australia for, because Australia is. You know, said they're going to drop the use of the term occupied in regard to territories in East Jerusalem, uh, which they spent a lot of time explaining this week as to, to counteract the reaction to it, the negative reaction on part of some. Uh, but but nobody reports that Ismail Haniyeh, you know, the head of Hamas, mother-in-law, came to treatment in Jerusalem <laughs> for cancer. Unbelievable. Last year, his granddaughter came. That we remember we discussed. And here his mother-in-law, while he is threatening to destroy Israel again, his mother-in-law comes for treatment. And Israel has these compassion laws, which, you know, and thousands, thousands of Palestinians are coming to Jerusalem hospitals to be treated. And the the, the international media just dismisses what, even 
to the sense that this is such a, uh, an unusual story or ironic story that, that he would uh, allow this to take place. Or a story that wouldn't take place in any, in any other country. In, in no other place, exactly. Um, back to, for a second, so Israel goes in after this rocket attack. As you said, the IAF uh, um, uh, flies into Gaza, right? I assume they destroyed something on their, on their way in, right? They killed a, a terrorist. They killed a terrorist. About to no, and now tell me if I'm wrong, no international condemnation, right? Don't you find it interesting that Israel was, you know, immediately responded, felt it was responding uh, properly, which I think most people would say they were. And, and there was, am I right? There was no international condemnation. There was no reaction to it. Of Israel? Yeah. For responding and defending itself? Usually I'm saying. But, no, of the right. attack. And the fact that a rocket was launched, the United States did, as I said. No, I understand. But the what, national what, community, of course, won't. No I, no, I understand, but I'm talking about the Israeli reaction. In other words, normally you would see what you would see. You would see somebody coming out with a statement against Israel for reacting the way they did uh, to this rocket attack. Well, for one thing, Israel made very clear what it was going to do, and that underscores the need to draw the red lines and to uphold them. That the international community, when they see that you're acting consistently and in accord with with uh, international law, because when you are attacked across an international border, which is the border between Gaza and Israel. Mm-hmm. Is the character of the, that that border governed by international law? They have a responsibility to respond and to stop uh, uh, the firing of of uh, rockets. So the international community, I think, will be muted. Also, there were no civilians hurt, and there was nothing else really that they right. could do. And I don't think the international community has much sympathy when they see what's happening now with the ISIS uh, and all that. I think right now they're not coming to the defense of all right. Terrorism. So, so the uh, the PA in Gaza. You'll, first of all, will they ever have control over what's going on in Gaza? And what will they tell the world now? The PA is now going to tell the U.S. that they will establish control by when? Um, I don't think that they give themselves deadlines. They only give Israel deadlines. Uh, that they will, I'm sure that they will issue statements saying that they will Need respond to it. The, the truth is, though, that Gans, the chief of staff, spoke this week you know, and, and talked about the huge increase in the number of medium and long-range missiles uh, with much more accurate GPS guidance systems, meaning that they, when they fire them, they have better ability to come closer to the target. Most of them hit in the desert, which may be, in fact, what some want. But the, the, uh, they're, they're continuing to try to big build tunnels, and they're going to use t- tunnels and rockets as a, as a threat, and that's what Hamas and Islamic Jihad, and Hamas says, well, listen, we're not the government, we're, we agreed to this government, but it's an independent technocrat government, as they call it. Uh, the international community in the, in the United States and the lead has to say, this is good, they're going to be held to account, and Israel will do what it has to do, and must do it, uh, and whatever steps to take out these 10,000 missiles, I think is, is uh, essential, but the international community you know, does not mobilize one of these things. And in terms of reality, you believe the PA will never be able to have control over what's going on in Gaza? There's no evidence right now that the PA can, can control it. They're having a big fight, as you know, over the, between Hamas and Fatah, over the 40,000 former Hamas employees in Gaza of the government, of the Hamas government. There are 70,000 employees of the Fatah government who have all along, now for all these years, been collecting yearly salaries to remain idle. But they didn't want to remove them because then that would have meant that essentially they were giving up their claims and their the ability to control. So you had tens of thousands of people sitting there, 70,000 Palestinians of, of, from Fatah, 
Now you're going to have 40,000 more, and they balked at paying, and Hamas, you know, already is threatening. But at the same time, Hamas is moving ahead. We shouldn't delude ourselves that they're not taking advantage of uh, of this opportunity and uh, trying to establish itself. And then they look at what happened in Iraq and elsewhere, and I'm sure it's got to be a source of encouragement for them. Talk about Americans in Iraq in a moment. Just um, when the... Uh uh, when Congress goes ahead and warns the U.S., I'm reading from this uh, a Jerusalem Post article, leaders in the House have written a letter to U.S. President Obama suggesting a pact with Iran restricted to its nuclear program is not enough for the chamber to lift sanctions on the country. Do you agree with that, that Congress can't move under those circumstances? That, they, that Congress can't move? That Meaning they wouldn't be able to uh, to lift sanctions under those circumstances? I think that uh, Congress can make it far more complicated, can exercise its prerogative, its, and its essential role, that there are checks and balances. They can. I think they can make it uh, harder to lift, uh, to lift sanctions. And, and I can tell you that the mood in Congress on both sides of the aisle is, is very tough. Uh, you know, nobody, they don't want to have a confrontation with the president, that, uh, unnecessary confrontations, and that applies to Iran issues and other issues as well. But when Congress wants to act and wants to exercise its prerogatives, it matters. Right. So it seems that there's no agreement that Congress will ever that, that Congress will ever recognize as strong enough between the U.S. and Iran to lift sanctions. That that's Congre- the congressional message to the White House. They're saying that the deal that they hear is is not enough to lift sanctions. And remember, they don't know there are direct negotiations going on between Iran and the United States. They were informed of it. Israel was informed, but they don't know what's actually taking place hour by hour. You know, they spent five hours Monday alone in direct negotiations, and that is in addition to a second track of, quote, private citizens, not so private, uh, who are having talks in Sweden with the Iranians. So Congress is is putting down a marker, an important marker, and the the um, you know they're, they're reacting to some of the statements that the Iranians are making that a the ballistic missile program is not on the table. Well, if you don't have that, one of the three key components in a nuclear weapons program on the table, if weaponization is not on the table, and now we're only dealing with enrichment where they have 19,000 centrifuges in place, of which. I think under the agreement, 10,000 are operative. So the French foreign minister yesterday came out and said they can have 100 uh, operative. They're saying we want 50,000 operative. And if we don't draw the line in the sand and we keep moving the goalpost, that's why we have so little confidence being evidenced by our allies, former allies, our Gulf and the other regions, because they see that none of the red lines mean anything, that we keep moving it, the, the IRGC, Iran Revolutionary Guard said that their missiles now can hit Bahrain, it can hit uh, Diego Garcia, that they can hit southern Europe, they can hit uh, many places, and eventually will hit the United States in, in a couple of years. The, um, the United States and Israel reached an agreement where they would be, quote, no surprises, unquote, and they sent uh, Bill Burns, a, a career diplomat, a very good man, to, to Israel to brief them on the direct talks that, that were going on. Uh, they feel, I think, that if you take it out of the context of the P5 plus 1, one, you eliminate Russia and China, but the, the United States is the key interlocutor. And the, the, so 
the, the uh, direct talks could be more important than the P5 plus 1. Obviously, setting the stage would need their approval. I think the differences are still great. The fear is that we end up with a bad deal or no deal and extend the agreement as is provided for for six months, but do we lift any more sanctions? Or, contrary, because to show that they're not co cooperative, do we impose new sanctions? Congress is sending a strong message, and, and we know the votes are, are there. They're overwhelming, in, in fact, and I think the alert from Iraq will, will put people much more on notice <coughs> about the seriousness of, of, uh, of this time and of the decisions uh, that are being made. But this congressional pressure never seems to have an effect on the presidential opinion when it comes to sanctions and how to deal with Iran. No, I think it, it may not be as visible, but the president certainly cannot ignore or put aside the, the, the sentiment of Congress because they can. And if they have enough votes, they can override a veto. They can impose their will as well. It's true the president holds the cards, especially in negotiations, and uh, has the bully pulpit and can do a lot, but relationships are not that great. But again, I know and I've talked to many senators and congressmen, people don't want to have a confrontation, right. especially on such a sensitive issue at such a complex time. Yeah, and politically... But that does not mean we should never diminish and dismiss the influence that Congress has and can have when they want to. Um, and then, and this time of year, with the as you described earlier, primary season coming up, or in some places in the midst of it, and of course the midterm elections coming up, uh, you know, a lot of these factors can be very, uh, very sensitive and negatively. Right, it can be very sensitive. How dangerous is it to be an American, an American in Iraq right now? It's not. It's not healthy to be anybody in Iraq right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I think people. If you recall, we discussed it already last Friday. I raised it about the ISIS right. because they had held off the Iranian, the uh, Syrian army for four days, and I said this is a very significant development. And I told it to other friends in Washington and elsewhere. This is not a new development. It, ha it, it has taken new turns, and everybody was surprised by it. I think everybody, but they shouldn't have been surprised about the the growth of these and the capacity of this offshoot terrorist organization, it, you know, used to be um, Al-Qaeda in, in uh, Iraq and Al-Qaeda in, uh, in Syria and the Levant. Now it's ISIS. Uh, whether there's also still the ISIL is a, is a question, but th these guys are the most extreme terrorists, so much so that Al-Qaeda disassociated from them. Uh, you know, in the areas under their control and, especially the city of Raqqa, which I've mentioned many times because it's in the oil industry, but it's where you have these camps to train uh, terrorists for attacks abroad, not in Syria and not necessarily just in the Middle East, but to train these especially foreign terrorists who have come to fight in, in Syria, thousands of them, to, to train them for actions abroad. The, the, so the, uh, in Raqqa, the ISIS charges Christians a special Islamic tax. They execute people in the main squares. You can see the pictures in the Iraqi highway of the policemen one after another with their heads cut off. These are vicious terrorist groups. That's why guys run away from them. Uh, it's not an excuse. When generals you know, just take off their uniforms when 
soldiers are selling their uniforms, when their weapons they're turning over, and, and as soon as the weapons are, are captured, especially the more advanced ones, they ship them into Syria for their fighting there. Here, they met almost no resistance, and you know, they're not running around. They don't have airplanes. They're running around primarily on the souped-up uh, pickup trucks with machine guns uh, attached to them. They have some rockets, they have some other equipment, which uh, the source of which I think will become more apparent as we go along. Uh, but it's rather a crude operation, and they're able to take over a city like Mosul in, in, in hours and, and uh, Tikrit and other places. Remember, this is the heart of the oil industry. Uh, we will see now more responses, perhaps. I think Iran, uh, General Soleimani is there, the, which means that the, uh, he's the head of the Iran Revolutionary Guard, and uh, will be will uh, will be in Tehran. Will be operate in. I'm sorry, Baghdad, uh, and the uh, you know Iran is seeing this as as a challenge. And, and in many respects, this may in fact be Saudi Arabia versus Iran. That the Saudis are backing them as a Sunni group, ISIS versus Iran, which has been increasingly uh, been dominant in in Iraq. And Maliki is not only weak, but has been closely aligned with Iran. So this is part of the Sunni-Shiite conflict, and as I said many times here, you know that underlies right. so much of what of what is happening there. That's the and, nucleus of the. And Iran. now they're talking about the threat being against Jordan, but also Lebanon, Syria, Sinai, Gaza. We know that they've moved near the Golan. The ISIS troops have been near there, and there are bases of, of Al Qaeda and others there. Uh, Jordanians were pictured on a on a video. Uh, tearing up their passports and calling for the slaughter of Abdullah, th- th- they could easily move in that direction. They can move towards Baghdad. They can consolidate this area of uh, Syria and Lebanon that they're holding and want to create a new Islamist state there, which obviously becomes a very destabilize- additional destabilizing factor and won't end there. Now, if Hamas looks at this and they see these guys and their success, why would they not? And they can link up across Jordan, and Jordan be the be the carbon and all of this. If they see what kind of success, meaning that they're that they're able to associate with so many different countries and organizations, that the ISIS has been able to take major cities, move without international uh, uh, reaction, right. that everybody you know talks about it, and everybody all the front page newspaper articles. But what have they done so far? So the other side could do the same thing, and they, and they feel they can move ahead and. Hamas can move ahead in the in the, the West Bank, and then they can do a squeeze play on on Jordan because Hamas has always said that Jordan should be part of the deal, and they want to take over uh, Jordan as well. I mean, it, it it looks like a potential one big civil war coming up in the region. The region is in a civil war. That's why I kept saying it's an Arab volcano, and this is a new eruption of this Arab volcano. And if we don't take steps. Crush it. First of all, I mean, part of the problem is there are no good players in any of this. Right. Uh, we're going to see what Iran does. And uh, I had been questioning during the week why Iran was so quiet as they moved, uh, gained in, in Syria and then crossed the border in what is now uh, almost protectorate of, uh, of Iran and Maliki, uh, the Maliki regime, and certainly the Syrian regime, which they have said, you know, his victory is critical to them and. They, they see this in, in every respect as affecting their security, that, the, that they didn't act. And it may be that we'll see now that they will, will react in much, uh, in much stronger ways. 
But are the Saudis funding the ISIS? Did, was this their answer to, to the failure of the West and that they're trying to create a balance inside Syria by backing the ISIS against the Iranian-backed forces? Turkey is known to give them free passage. The ISIS fighters, people coming to volunteer, are known to be taking commercial flights to areas near the border and then just walking across. They pay a $40 bribe to a guard and walk into Syria. Does the U.S. have an obligation to uh, support Saudi Arabia in this, or do Saudi Arabians think that they that the U.S. has an obligation to support them? They felt that the United States has an obligation all along to, to be more active, to the failure to act in Syria and to, to activate our bomb at the time uh, was a critical threshold. They think that, that the United States and the West in general are going to capitulate on Iran. They have no belief that there will be a tough deal coming out of it. So they're taking their own actions, and they have the money, the independence to do it. Uh, when when uh, I know the Kuwaitis were, were in Iran now because they're looking at the tea leaves and saying, well, if we don't have a future, so they signed a six-point agreement with them. Um, Zarif turned down the invitation to, to Saudi Arabia, but others tell me that he will go you know, at a more propitious time in the future because of negotiations. He couldn't go now. He could have gone if he wanted to, but and he may have been wanting to send a message. But all of these are indications that people are hedging their bets, that, that the countries no longer have confidence that the West will, will hold to the red lines that are established. and, and uh, They feel they have to choose sides. And they have to choose sides. And the ISS is such a vicious thing. I mean, there is no black and white here. They, they would call the families of, of Iraqi soldiers. They would confront them and tell them to dig their own graves, and then they would shoot them. They, they're vicious. And the, uh, uh, they have become the most powerful of the jihadi groups in, in Syria. Perhaps al-Qaeda has been in the decline, but these guys have been in, in the ascent. Uh, and, and I don't know whether people just didn't take it seriously. It's not because people didn't know. The information uh, was there. Finally, is Australia going to suffer with the brand-new way that they refer to Jerusalem instead of uh, occupied Jerusalem? They are being hit. I spoke to some Australian figures this week, officials, and uh, people, I hope, let their voices be heard about uh, this courageous move on the part of the uh, government. It wasn't meant as a political statement, but a statement of reality that you don't prejudge. You, you, it when it, and this applies only to East Jerusalem, uh, but to say that you, it should not be described, and they will not describe it as occupied uh, territory. So the Palestinians have gone now to the Arab League. They're talking about sanctions and threats against uh, the government. The government seems to have, be standing by the position that they uh, adopted. Maybe the Canadians will follow and some others uh, to, to reinforce it. But, you know, if the world looks at the situation today and how much the focus on Israel, a building in its capital, in, in, even in Gilo, it's cap, part of its capital, Terrorism is spreading worldwide. The Rand Institute put out a study that showed the, that from from 2007 to 2013, the numbers almost double of of the number of Salafi-like terrorist organizations like ISIS. Certainly, the number of attacks. I think there were 10,000 in 2013. 18,000 people killed. 30,000 uh, injured. Uh, and these are the numbers that they come to, and I'm I believe the numbers certainly are higher, as we see with groups like ISIS, because a lot of the killing that goes on is not reported, it's not public. The, the challenge is 
uh, the universal challenge today of uh, terrorism. And when somebody takes a courageous stand like Australia, A, they should hear. B, the international community then comes down against them. And yeah. whether And we do not mobilize and we're not organizing against the true sources of terror, whether it's Hamas or ISIS or Iran. No question. Look forward to seeing you here next week, please, God. God willing. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Next week, our plan is, and I thank Malcolm for putting it into his plan, is uh, to have him in our studio here at JM in the AM, literally open up the phone lines once he gets in and keep them open until uh, the end of the show, just breaking for a Bayudin so that everybody out there gets this unique opportunity, which we only do every once in a while, uh, to ask whatever questions you have of uh, Malcolm Honline. You'll control the show next week. Think of those good questions, as you listeners always do, and um, we'll open up the phone lines, please God, next Friday morning.